Section 10 of The Princes and Curdie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Princess and Curdie by George MacDonald. Chapters 15 to 16. Chapter 15. Durba and Barbara. Meantime the wanderers were hospitably entertained by the old woman and her grandchild, and they were all very comfortable and happy together. Little Barbara sat upon Curdie's knee, and he told her stories about the mines and his adventures in them. But he never mentioned the king or the princess, for all that story was hard to believe. And he told her about his mother and father, and how good they were. And Durba sat and listened. At last little Barbara fell asleep in Curdie's arms, and her grandmother carried her to bed. It was a poor house, and Durba gave up her own room to Curdie, because he was honest and talked wisely. Curdie saw how it was, and begged her to allow him to lie on the floor, but she would not hear of it. In the night he was waked by Lena pulling at him. As soon as he spoke to her she ceased, and Curdie, listening, thought he heard someone trying to get in. He rose, took his mattock, and went about the house, listening and watching. But although he heard noises now at one place, now at another, he could not think what they meant, for no one appeared. Certainly, considering how she had frightened them all in the day, it was not likely anyone would attack Lena at night. By and by the noises ceased, and Curdie went back to his bed and slept undisturbed. In the morning, however, Durba came to him in great agitation, and said they had fastened up the door so that she could not get out. Curdie rose immediately and went with her. They found that not only the door, but every window in the house was so secured on the outside that it was impossible to open one of them without using great force. Poor Durba looked anxiously in Curdie's face. He broke out laughing. They are much mistaken, he said, if they fancy they could keep Lena and a miner in any house in Gwyntstorm, even if they built up doors and windows. With that he shouldered his mattock. But Durba begged him not to make a hole in her house just yet. She had plenty for breakfast, she said, and before it was time for dinner, they would know what the people meant by it. And indeed they did, for within an hour appeared one of the chief magistrates of the city, accompanied by a score of soldiers with drawn swords, and followed by a great multitude of people, requiring the miner and his brute to yield themselves, the one that he might be tried for the disturbance he had occasioned and the injury he had committed, the other that she might be roasted alive for her part in killing two valuable and harmless animals belonging to worthy citizens. The summons was preceded and followed by flourish of trumpet, and was read with every formality by the city marshal himself. The moment he ended, Lena ran into the little passage and stood opposite the door. "'I surrender,' cried Curdie. "'Then tie up your brute and give her here.' "'No, no,' cried Curdie through the door. "'I surrender, but I'm not going to do your hangman's work.' "'If you want my dog, you must take her.' 
"'then we shall set the house on fire and burn, which and all. "'It will go hard on us, but we shall kill a few dozen of you first, "'cried Curdie. "'We're not the least afraid of you.' "'With that Curdie turned to Derba and said, "'Don't be frightened. "'I have a strong feeling that all will be well. "'Surely no trouble will come to you for being good to strangers.' "'But the poor dog,' said Derba. "'Now Curdie and Lena understood each other more than a little by this time, "'and not only had he seen that she understood the proclamation, "'but when she looked up at him after it was read, "'it was with such a grin and such a yellow flash "'that he saw also she was determined to take care of herself. "'The dog will probably give you reason to think a little more of her ere long,' "'he answered. "'But now,' he went on, "'I fear I must hurt your house a little.' "'I have great confidence, however, "'that I shall be able to make it up to you for it one day. "'Never mind the house. "'If only you can get safe off,' she answered. "'I don't think they will hurt this precious lamb,' she added, "'clasping little Barbara to her bosom. "'For myself it is all one. "'I am ready for anything.' "'It is but a little hole for Lena I want to make,' said Curdie. "'She can creep through a much smaller one than you would think.' "'and again he took his mattock and went to the back wall. "'They won't burn this house,' he said to himself. "'There is too good a one on each side of it.' "'The tumult had kept increasing every moment, "'and the city marshal had been shouting, "'but Curdie had not listened to him. "'When now they heard the blows of his mattock, "'there went up a great cry, "'and the people taunted the soldiers "'that they were afraid of a dog and his miner.' The soldiers therefore made a rush at the door and cut its fastenings. The moment they opened it, out leapt Lena, with a roar so unnaturally horrible that the sword-arms of the soldiers dropped by their sides, paralysed with the terror of that cry. The crowd fled in every direction, shrieking and yelling with mortal dismay, and without even knocking down with their tail, not to say biting a man of them with her pulverizing jaws, Lena vanished. No one knew whither, for not one of the crowd had had courage to look upon her. The moment she was gone, Curdie advanced and gave himself up. The soldiers were so filled with fear, shame and chagrin that they were ready to kill him on the spot. But he stood quietly facing them, with his mattock on his shoulder, and the magistrate wishing to examine him, and the people to see him made an example of. The soldiers had to content themselves with taking him. Partly for derision, partly to hurt him, they laid his mattock against his back and tied his arms to it. They led him up a very steep street, and up another still, all the crowd following. The king's palace castle rose towering above them, but they stopped before they reached it, "'at a low-browed door in a great, dull, heavy-looking building. "'The city marshal opened it with a key which hung at his girdle, "'and ordered Curdie to enter. "'The place within was dark as night, "'and while he was feeling his way with his feet, "'the marshal gave him a rough push. "'He fell and rolled once or twice over, "'unable to help himself because his hands were tied behind him. "'It was the hour of the magistrate's second and more important breakfast, and, until that was over, he never found himself capable of attending to a case 
with concentration sufficient to the distinguishing of the side upon which his own advantage lay. And hence was this respite for Curdie, with time to collect his thoughts. But indeed he had very few to collect, for all he had to do, so far as he could see, was to wait for what would come next. Neither had he much power to collect them, for he was a good deal shaken. In a few minutes he discovered, to his great relief, that, from the projection of the pick-end of his mattock beyond his body, the fall had loosened the ropes tied round it. He got one hand disengaged, and then the other, and presently stood free, with his good mattock once more in right serviceable relation to his arms and legs. CHAPTER Sixteen: THE MATTOCK While the magistrate reinvigorated his selfishness with a greedy breakfast, Curdie found doing nothing in the dark rather tiresome work. It was useless attempting to think what he should do next, seeing the circumstances in which he was presently to find himself were altogether unknown to him. So he began to think about his father and mother in their little cottage home, high in the clear air of the open mountainside and the thought, instead of making his dungeon gloomier by the contrast, made a light in his soul that destroyed the power of darkness and captivity. But he was at length startled from his waking dream by a swell in the noise outside. All the time there had been a few of the more idle of the inhabitants about the door, but they had been rather quiet. Now, however, the sounds of feet and voices began to grow, and grew so rapidly that it was plain a multitude was gathering. For the people of Gwyntstorm always gave themselves an hour of pleasure after their second breakfast, and what greater pleasure could they have than to see a stranger abused by the officers of justice? The noise grew till it was like the roaring of the sea, and that roaring went on a long time, for the magistrate, being a great man, liked to know that he was waited for, it added to the enjoyment of his breakfast, and, indeed, enabled him to eat a little more after he had thought his powers exhausted. But at length, in the waves of the human noises, rose a bigger wave, and by the running and shouting and outcry, Curdie learned that the magistrate was approaching. Presently came the sound of the great rusty key in the lock, which yielded with groaning reluctance. The door was thrown back, the light rushed in, and with it came the voice of the city marshal, calling upon Curdie, by many legal epithets opprobrious, to come forth and be tried for his life, insomuch as he had raised a tumult in his majesty's city of Gwyntstorm, troubled the hearts of the king's baker and barber, and slain the faithful dogs of his majesty's well-beloved butchers. He was still reading, and Curdie was still seated in the brown twilight of the vault, not listening, but pondering with himself, how this king the city marshal talked of, could be the same with the majesty he had seen, ride away on his grand white horse with the princess Irene on a cushion before him, when a scream of agonized terror arose on the farthest skirt of the crowd, and, swifter than flood or flame, the horror spread shrieking, in a moment the air was filled with hideous howling, cries of unspeakable dismay, and the multitudinous noise of running feet. The next moment, 
in at the door of the vault-bounded Lena, her two green eyes flaming yellow as sunflowers, and seeming to light up the dungeon. With one spring she threw herself at Curdie's feet, and laid her head upon them panting. Then came a rush of two or three soldiers darkening the doorway, but it was only to lay hold of the key, pull the door to, and lock it, so that once more Curdie and Lena were prisoners together. For a few moments Lena lay panting hard. It is breathless work leaping and roaring both at once, and that in a way to scatter thousands of people. Then she jumped up, and began snuffing about all over the place, and Curdie saw what he had never seen before. Two faint spots of light cast from her eyes upon the ground, one on each side of her snuffing nose. He got out his tinder-box, a miner is never without one, and lighted a precious bit of candle he carried in a division of it just for a moment, for he must not waste it. The light revealed a vault without any window or other opening than the door. It was very old and much neglected. The mortar had vanished from between the stones, and it was half filled with a heap of all sorts of rubbish, beaten down in the middle, but looser at the sides. It sloped from the door to the foot of the opposite wall. Evidently for a long time the vault had been left open, and every sort of refuse thrown into it. A single minute served for the survey, so little was there to note. Meantime, down in the angle between the back wall and the base of the heap, Lena was scratching furiously with all the eighteen great strong claws of her mighty feet. "'Aha!' said Curdie to himself, catching sight of her. "'If only they will leave us long enough to ourselves!' With that he ran to the door, to see if there was any fastening on the inside— there was none. In all its long history it never had had one. But a few blows of the right sort, now from one, now from the other end of his mattock, were as good as any bolt, for they so ruined the lock that no key could ever turn in it again. Those who heard them fancied he was trying to get out, and laughed spitefully. As soon as he had done, he extinguished his candle, and went down to Lena. She had reached the hard rock which formed the floor of the dungeon, and was now clearing away the earth a little wider. Presently she looked up in his face and whined, as much to say, My paws are not hard enough to get any farther. Then get out of my way, Lena, said Curdie, and mind you keep your eyes shining, for fear I should hit you. So saying he heaved his mattock, and assailed with the hammer-end of it the spot she had cleared. The rock was very hard, but when it did break it broke in good-sized pieces. Now with hammer, now with pick, he worked till he was weary, then rested, and then set to again. He could not tell how the day went, as he had no light but the lamping of Lena's eyes. The darkness hampered him greatly, for he would not let Lena come close enough to give him all the light she could, lest he should strike her. So he had, every now and then, to feel with his hands, to know how he was getting on, and to discover in what direction to strike. The exact spot was a mere imagination. He was getting very tired and hungry, and beginning to lose heart a little, when out of the ground, as if he had struck a spring of it, 
burst a dull, gleamy, lead-coloured light, and the next moment he heard a hollow splash and echo. A piece of rock had fallen out of the floor and dropped into water beneath. Already Lena, who had been lying a few yards off all the time he worked, was on her feet and peering through the hole. Curdie got down on his hands and knees and looked. They were over what seemed a natural cave in the rock, to which apparently the river had access, for, at a great distance below, a faint light was gleaming upon water. If they could but reach it, they might get out. But even if it was deep enough, the height was very dangerous. The first thing, whatever might follow, was to make the hole larger. It was comparatively easy to break away the sides of it, and in the course of another hour he had it large enough to get through. And now he must reconnoitre. He took the rope they had tied him with, for Curdie's hindrances were always his furtherance, and fastened one end of it by a slip-knot round the handle of his pickaxes, then dropped the other end through, and laid the pickaxe so that, when he was through himself and hanging on the edge, he could place it across the hole to support him on the rope. This done, he took the rope in his hands, and, beginning to descend, found himself in a narrow cleft winding into a cave. His rope was not very long, and would not do much to lessen the force of his fall, he thought to himself, if he should have to drop into the water. But he was not more than a couple of yards below the dungeon, when he spied an opening on the opposite side of the cleft. It might be but a shadow-hole, or it might lead them out. He dropped himself a little below its level, gave the rope a swing by pushing his feet against the side of the cleft, and so penduled himself into it. Then he laid a stone on the end of the rope that it should not forsake him, called to Lena, whose yellow eyes were gleaming over the mattock grating above, to watch there till he returned, and went cautiously in. It proved a passage, level for some distance, then sloping gently up. He advanced carefully, feeling his way as he went. At length he was stopped by a door, a small door studded with iron. But the wood was in places so much decayed that some of the bolts had dropped out, and he felt sure of being able to open it. He returned, therefore, to fetch Lena and his mattock. Arrived at the cleft, his strong minor arms bore him swiftly up along the rope and threw the hole into the dungeon. Then he untied the rope from his mattock, and making Lena take the end of it in her teeth and get through the hole, he lowered her. It was all he could do, she was so heavy. When she came opposite the passage, with a slight push of her tail, she shot herself into it, and let go the rope, which Curdie drew up. Then he lighted his candle, and searching in the rubbish found a bit of iron to take the place of his pickaxe across the hole. Then he searched again in the rubbish, and found half an old shutter. This he propped up, leaning a little over the hole, with a bit of stick, and heaped against the back of it a quantity of the loosened earth. Next he tied his mattock to the end of the rope, dropped it and let it hang. Last he got through the hole himself, and pulled away the propping stick, so that the shutter fell over the hole with a quantity of earth on top of it. A few motions of hand over hand, 
and he swung himself and his mattock into the passage beside Lena. Then he secured the end of the rope, and they went on together to the door. End of section 10